Welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. The PSF's mission is to provide education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society, while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of re incarceration. The PSF also advocates for reform and correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn more about becoming a board member. You can also email us at info at prisonscholars.org and find us through most social media platforms at Prison Scholars. Become a patron by supporting us directly at Patreon with at Prison Scholars. We appreciate your review of this podcast through whatever platform you listen through. Without further ado, here's Dirk Van Velsen, founder and CEO of the Prison Scholar Fund. Welcome to our social impact. We're in Dalton, Illinois, which is south side Chicago. Yep. And I'm at the, the home of Marlon Chamberlain. Yep. Thank you so much for inviting me. Definitely, definitely. So tell me about yourself and what you do at, uh, you work at the same place that Quentin works. Yep, yep. So I work for an initiative called Ready Chicago, uh, which is an acronym for Rapid Employment and Development Initiative. And it's an 18-month transitional jobs program that offers cognitive behavioral therapy um, and a list of other wraparound services for perpetrators and victims of gun violence. And I'm the, I'm sorry, I'm the community project manager for Greater Inglewood in Chicago, Illinois. Okay. So what does that look like? What do you do there? Um, so one of the unique things about my job that I love is that no two days are the same. And so each day is different. Um, but my primary responsibilities is to make sure um, that the program is being implemented with fidelity. Um, and then also um, that the participants that we're serving, my, my job is to make sure that the services that we're offering are quality services and that um, we're actually like really implementing the model in the way that it should be. Okay. So of course I met you at the Just Leadership USA Leadership Development Program in New York. Yep. Uh, yep. Followed you out to Chicago to talk to you. Yep. Yep. So, so kind of tell me about your journey. How did you get involved with JLUSA and also how did you get passionate about this work? So how did I get involved with JUSA? Um, so a couple of years ago in 2016, um, they had a, um, an emerging leaders training here. Um, and Colette Payne, who's a friend of mine and also a part of, of a coalition that I belong to, um, invited me out to come out to the Emerging Leaders Training. I went, um, absolutely loved the training. It was one of the best uh, trainings that I had been, been involved in as far as um, just the investment in people with records. Um, so that was my first connection to JUSA, but how I got introduced to the work um, I, I spent 10 and a half years in federal prison. I was released in 2012, in May of 2012, and upon my release, um, well, let me go back. So I was initially sentenced to a 20-year sentence, and because of the Fair Sentencing Act, my sentence was reduced from 20 to 14 years, in which I served 10 and a half. And so even prior to well, my... Wait, let, let me jump on it there. I'm not familiar with the Fair Sentencing Act, and was this about drug crimes, or what was you, what'd they get you for? So, so my... my Crime was a drug crime, a conspiracy, um, and the Fair Sentencing Act changed the, 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 it basically changed the disparity between crack and cocaine, and okay. it, it lowered like the sentencing like levels for, for people who, who were on like 
um, conspiracies that that involve crack cocaine. And that, that Obama did that, right? Yeah, that was under his term. Yeah, well, Obama signed it into law, but but uh, there were a lot of organizations that helped build out that legislation, but he signed that into law, I believe, in two thousand seven. Okay, so you got out after ten years instead of twenty. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's absolutely. a good break. Yeah. Yeah. So even in prison, when that happened, like that really like motivated me to want to get involved because prior to my, my, my prison experience, like I had no like knowledge of like the, the, the legislative process. And so um, I just kind of committed to myself to say, like, when I get home, I want to I want to work for an organization that that works on legislation to change policy, because. I left behind in prison a lot of good people who I believe that the the reason the the man I am today is because a lot of investment that that from the the relationships that I had in prison, and so I wanted to do something to try to give back to change the system, so that a lot of these young men and men could come home. Okay, so kind of talk about you know the difference between the man you are today and the guy that led you to prison. I don't know when you fell at your, what age you were. Uh, I was twenty four years old. Um, of course, but, it sounds like you're probably getting in trouble before then. Yes, like yes. Most this, of us. this was actually actually my fourth time in prison when um, I earned the Fed case. Okay. Um, so prior to to me serving ten years, I just I was involved just like with a lot of like um, a lot of a lot of my convictions were related to drugs. Um, and after my federal case, I just kind of realized that, that I wasn't good at selling drugs. <laughs> and so I decided I wanted to do something different, but it was an addiction. I initially started, um, with the, the vision of being able to make some money to take care of my family. And then I got addicted and, and just, I couldn't stop. And just like, I would go to prison and would get out. And because I didn't basically surround myself around a, a good support network, I went right back to the same environment and did the exact same thing. Yeah, you had kind of a bad reference group, so you're doing the life on the installment plan. Absolutely, absolutely. So what helped you break that? So this this last prison like, like experience, like... When you're looking at 20 years. I had 20 years, I was 24, 25 years old, um, and I just, I couldn't see myself coming home at 40 something years old doing the same thing again. And so I started just like like signing up for any educational program I could sign up for. Um, it was unfortunate because of the, the length of my sentence, I couldn't sign up for like any college courses because I had too much time. Um, at the, oh, they have time time blocks. Yep, yep. And then and then once my sentence was reduced, they told me that now after serving, I think I had been in maybe seven to eight years. They told me I was too short to sign up for any like college courses. So the federal system had some some courses at that time. Yep, they had this. This was so by the first institution I was in, Milan, Michigan. There were limited like like education like college programs, but when I was transferred to Yankton, South Dakota, they had a lot of educational programs. Um, some of that I was able to participate in, but like the long term like like four year degree like college classes, I, they said I didn't have enough time to, to, to sign up for one of those. So what kind of year, what year was this? What, uh... Uh, between 2002 and 2012, so I was in Yankton, South Dakota, I believe from 2009. So the Pell Grant had already been taken away, they just had a few programs left? Yeah, yeah. So who funded those programs if you're in the federal system? Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. But they were, they were definitely taking a lot of the educational programs out of, out of the prisons. I think Yankton, South Dakota was probably one of the only like prisons like left, and it was a prison camp. When and this is probably one yeah. of the only camps left that had like a lot of educational programs in it. 
So how far along did you get? Um, I earned a couple credits, um, but but what they did have, like I participated in a, um, a college writing course um, that I helped write. Well, I actually wrote two essays that were published in a book called 5 p.m. Count. Um, I, and I took a lot of like classes where I received a lot of certifications for. Okay. Um, but I've been in school since I've been home. Um, I just transferred from a community college to a four-year school here at Northeastern, um, and I'm at a, I, I will be starting in a social work program in January. Nice. So yeah, so when did you get, actually get out? Uh, to May 31st, 2012. Okay, that's your re-birthday? That's my new re-birthday. <laughs> yep. And ever since then, you've been in school? Been in school, have been working. This is the longest I've ever had a job, um, the longest I've ever been out, um, and it's, it's, it's been great. Yeah, so what was the transition like from prison? You know, you, you just walk off 10 years, now you're out looking for a job, looking for school. How's that fall out? Um, so I, I would say the first phase of it, and um, like when, like, like right when I was released, I feel like there was a there was a, a transition because I had been gone. So it was a lot of things that I had to catch up on. Like there was no such thing as texts or, or like cameras on the phones. <laughs> yeah. Um I, I didn't know how to like ride the like public transportation system. Like it was just it was just little things that I just had to, to relearn. Um as far as me finding a job, I was I was blessed with an opportunity to where um I had suits somehow I had a lawsuit prior to me going to prison. And so when I when when I was released, the the uh the the point the person that I sued contacted me and said basically they had a lump sum of money for me. Nice. And so uh that helped because I wasn't I didn't have the pressure of like I need a job like right now because I had some money. You had a little cushion. I had a little cushion. So I was able to sign up for school and I went and I didn't enroll in a college program, but it was a, a program, I think it was called like Step Up, which was a program basically that would prepare you for college. Um, and I was able to take my time and really find, like, like figure out like what I wanted to do. And so I initially started off starting a painting company of my own, um, where I was able to hire people straight out the halfway house who had just come home from prison. Um, and so I basically kind of started like my own business um, that was very, su very successful upon me, like coming home from prison. Nice. So the first first phase of it was it was interesting. I'll say that um, um, I had a good support network. So my family um, was was definitely like there to help me. I think now that I've been home, I think I'm going on eight years or seven to eight years. The, the transition is like what I really realized is like people people talk a lot of times about like just the employment and housing yeah, of people coming one. home from prison. But people don't really talk about like just the mental like like fortitude that you have to have and grow into from just because I think initially when I came home I was trying to make up time make up time with my kids make up time with my family um, and what I've realized is that I can't you know and and for me that means that my focus now has been just being more present and what I'm doing versus trying to just like make up time and everything that I'm doing so I've really been able to slow myself down mentally and kind of think through like what do I want to do and what is my vision for myself over the next three to five years versus me just coming home and I was working like like I was working three jobs at one time and going to school and it was just too much yeah you're just killing it though yeah yeah so it sounded like you didn't have the housing issue problem a lot of people have that. No, I didn't have a housing issue. I actually moved from the halfway house. I stayed with 
a relative for I think a month and a half, and then I moved into a house in um, South Island. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't hard to move in the house, or you had friends so, there? No, because because of me just coming home and networking, I met somebody who had a record, had who had done prison time, who owned the house, and so me explaining to him my situation. It was like when I said, like, I just want to be up front and let you know that I have a record. He was like, you know, you don't have to worry about that. I've been to prison, too. So Cool. Um, it seems like a lot of people that have an easier process of getting in, they kind of social network it. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise you hit an apartment building with a property management yeah, company. Yeah. And are you guys working on the Band the Box for housing in Chicago or Illinois? Is yeah. That one of your things? Yeah. Yeah, we are. So I'm also a part of the Rocky Coalition, and I've missed a lot of stuff that, that I've been able to, like, start. So I'm going to just give, like, a brief summary. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hit them all. We've just uh, been catching up. <laughs> so, like, there was a transition from me owning a patent company to where I was able to hire someone who kind of took over as, like, the foreman of the company. And I was hired as an organizer for an initiative called FORCE. Uh, which was the acronym for fighting to overcome records and create equality and it was led by people with records and so from from my organizing work we went on to pass six bills um, the biggest one was the the ceiling um, um, eligibility where now there are thousands of, of records and convictions that can be sealed because of our work really? initially in Illinois there were only nine conviction convictions that could be sealed uh, and like I said, because of the work that we did, which was, it took us, I think, maybe two years. Like now, there are, there are thousands of convictions that, that folks can have their records sealed uh, to apply for housing and employment. So what's that process like? You get out of prison, you're formally incarcerated, you join this group to help these things get overturned. Like, what do you do? Like, what's your day-to-day -day when you pass these laws? So a lot of my time was spent either in com just different communities, building relationships and going out to like just different like reentry agencies. Um, so I built my, the start was me just developing relationships with like, with like the leadership of, of just different reentry agencies. And then I they would invite me out to come out and speak. I would put together a presentation, kind of just share a little bit of my story. And then at the end of it, I would ask individuals like, hey, do you want to jump on the train and go to Springfield? Springfield is your capital? Uh, Springfield is the capital in Illinois. Um, do, you, do you present at panels there or just talk to the senators? Uh, we've, we've, we've done both. Um, and so when we go to Springfield, uh, when, when we're there, we're either speaking with legislators, um, we're, we're sitting on panels, but just trying to educate uh, legislators around like the issues that we're having in, in Chicago. So do you draft the laws too or do you, do you review the drafts or just kind of like add your input informally? So we... The coalition, we would add our input, but we would also read like drafts of policy once it was drafted. Um, so we kind of helped write the, the policy in that way. I've never personally written like my own like piece of legislation, but a lot of our leaders contributed to what was what was produced. Very cool. Yeah. So how's that feel? It, it feels good. It feels good. Yeah, it, it, I, I felt good. Like I said, I, I didn't want to come home complaining about what the problems were. I wanted to be a part of the solution. Um, and that was a way for me to be a part of the solution. And then it also helped me just develop like my network, uh, my social capital. So I was able, like I said, like there is no agency in Chicago um, that I don't know if they if they deal with uh, the reentry population. So I was able to meet a lot of different people that's doing great work. Very cool. Yep. So it sounds like you have a lot of things going on. What was your, uh, yeah? What, what, how many projects have you got? Well, well, right now is just, um, like I said, I'm doing violence prevention work. 
Um, I'm a part of the, the Rocky Coalition still, who I, I also forgot to mention that I helped uh, build out that coalition of, of just the different agencies, Community Renewal Society, uh, Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, Cabrini Green Legal Aid, and Heartland Alliance. So I was one of the founding members that really helped develop and build that out, that, that what we went and did the, the work to pass six bills. And, and I also want to go back and say that when you say, like, what did my day-to-day -day look like? There was a lot of times where what, what we did or one of our strategies was to have someone in Springfield in the Capitol each week. So we would take turns. So this week may be Heartland's week, and we would have leaders going Monday through Friday to the Capitol to lobby, to talk to legislators. Just being there, making a presence. Being there, being persistent. And, and actually, when the ceiling bill passed, the the general assembly somebody stood up and said that this was one of the most lobbied bills that they had ever seen and so i, I this is all the momentum you guys are driving all of the momentum that that we did from just being there persistently each week so what kind of response did you get from the senators or the state legislators about the bill yeah like when you showed up to talk to them what kind of uh um, how you, you feel? Were, you recept were they receptive or you had some pushback? Most of them were receptive. We had a few that, that gave some pushback. Um, but, but ultimately, like, because of the, like, the work that we had done previously, so we had been in Springfield, like, from, I think, like, 2013 or 2014 consistently. So, like, they, they knew of our coalition. They knew, like, the coalition was, was consisted of organizers, leaders, and policy folks. And so they knew us. And so a lot of that hard work had already been like been done. And so even the pushback was just like around like, okay, well, can we can we set up a meeting with this industry just to see what they think about the bill? But there was no real like like pushback to say like it was it was a few people who just said, no, I won't support that. Gotcha. Uh, but ultimately, the majority of the folks we spoke to were, were receptive. So, of course, you, you talk about Chicago and we're in the south side of Chicago, which mm -hmm. is kind of the epicenter for a lot of violence. Mm -hmm. So when I came from Seattle, I kind of watched a Joe Rogan podcast and they were talking about how Chicago was uh, the most violent city in America. Mm -hmm. But of course, when you get here, it doesn't seem so bad. No. So what's kind of, what's your take on all of this in South Side? And how is that different from the other North Side or West Side? Wow, what's the difference between the South and the North Side? Um, for the people that don't know. So there's a I mean historically there's there has been like a just a lack of investment on the south side and if you ride around and and I would even say not all of the south side there are specific neighborhoods um where there's just been a lack of investment in those neighborhoods and so you could ride down some blocks and see like maybe 10 or 15 vacant homes and then there may be two homes where people actually live in those houses um, there are neighborhoods where you won't see a grocery store for miles. I've seen that a lot, food deserts. Yep, yep. But then, of course, if you drive a couple more blocks, you're at the University of Chicago. Yep, completely different neighborhood. Yeah, with a little cute little coffee shops. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's, I would say that the violence is a symptom of, of poverty and, and, and a, a lot of other just larger like, like societal issues. Um, that have just plagued these communities for, for, for decades and there's just been a lack of investment. And I believe if, if you were to invest in those communities that we would definitely see a change or a, a, a reduction in violence. Yeah, so it sounds like you're kind of in the criminal justice reform sphere. So what kind of does your work overlap into the, the community building or who, who's doing that work? When you say community building, like... Well, like, like investing in the communities, making them safer or I, I don't know, what does it take to, you know, 
reinvigorated community. So part part of like one of the 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 outcomes and goals of Ready Chicago is that we believe by by like I said we're we're offering folks a job. And so one of the unique things about Ready is that and we're specifically in Inglewood. And so one of our hopes is is that once we're able to engage these individuals oh and where's inglewood in, in context to all of this so inglewood is as a south side chicago community um it's maybe maybe 15 minutes from here okay um but it's one of, if you look at the 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 top three neighborhoods when we talk about violence inglewood is is if not number one number two so it's i hear austin, inglewood come up a lot yeah. it's austin inglewood and then north Lawndale. And those are the specific communities that Ready Chicago was in. I just happen to be the project manager for Greater Inglewood. And then okay. there's a project manager for Austin and North Lawndale. But one of the goals is, like, we go out our outreach team. They go out in the community in Inglewood. And they engage these individuals who are out involved in, in either perpetrators or victims of gun violence. And they recruit them. So if they go out and, let's say, for instance, they run into and, and, and they're able to recruit somebody today, that person actually could start work tomorrow. Really? And so the goal is really to get them into the program. And then on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, they participate in cognitive behavioral like therapy groups where they receive like a $25 stipend each and every day. So our goal is once we get them into the program, then we can work with the individuals through, through like for a time period of 18 months. Really, it's a 24-month program. So you kind of lure them in with the stipend and a conversation. Yep, yep, yep. And then once we get them into the program, it's, it's like I said, a lot of our staff are from Inglewood. They've been, been to prison. And so we just try to love on these individuals. And hopefully, our, our hope is that when they go back out to the community, some of the things that they're learning, that they take those things back out to Inglewood. So it's funny because we were just talking about the feedback you get from state legislators, and now you're talking to people in their inner city violent neighborhoods. What kind of feedback do you get there? So it's mixed. I've, we we're, we've been cussed out a lot. <laughs> um, it's even though you've been formerly incarcerated, they don't really care. It's just no, they don't. You just in their hood. It's, yeah, that's it. It doesn't matter. Just beat it, dude. Yeah. Well, sometimes, and then I mean, just because of my experience and and and. Um, being in the streets like even if I am cussed out it's just like just me being relentless and saying like hey listen this opportunity still exists if you change your mind here's my card give me a call and then the next week following up again uh, because a, a lot of these individuals like have been let down so much that they expect for folks to come in and try to sell them something and then let them down so you don't worry about going to this gun violent epicenter pushing your agenda you're not too worried about that not not really when I'm out. Like, when I'm out and, and I'm working, I don't think about it. Um, Are you doing this at 5 in the afternoon or, like, 2 in the morning? So, it, it varies. I've been out at 2 in the morning. Because that's when the people are out, right? Yep, yep. I've been yeah. out at 2 in the morning. And then I've also been involved at 8 in the morning and 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, this year alone, we've lost five participants that were killed in our program. Uh, okay. Which, which was tough. That's kind of real. Yep, 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 yep. So, what happened there? Um, well, one of them, he was on a Sunday afternoon, he was walking to the gas station, uh, just minding I, his own business, minding his own business. Uh, and I guess some people that, that his crew or clique was into it, saw him and they, they rolled back around the block and, and shot and killed him. Yep. Stuff's kind of real. Absolutely, absolutely, and then we have to we had to go back and start programming on on Monday, and so when things like that happen, 
what we do is we would break up the normal schedule like like programming and we would do like RJ circles or we would have therapists come in and just talk about like we would just talk about violence in general and yeah. how it needs to stop so what's his name what was his name? Yeah, the guy that got shot. Antonio Lynch. So instead of, you know, Antonio's out sick, Antonio just got shot. Yeah. Well, well, the participants know. Like, yeah, A lot of folks already. in our program, they know before they... And, and that's one of the things, too. Like, peop, the participants still show up because they consider our program like a safe space for them. And yeah. so they come there because they know, like, that they'll be safe. They know that they can talk about it. They can cry. Whatever they need to do to release the pain and hurt, they know... That, that they can come there and, and we're going to support them. And and so, like, even when you think about that, like, so, like, there were a lot of, like, people that were associated with it, with, with the Tony Antonio that wanted to retaliate. But after coming yeah. to the program, we were able to talk about it. Yeah, and, that's her homeboy. Right, right. and we But we were able to process things and really talk about it to where, as far as we know, no one retaliated that was in our program. Now, I can't say that, that it didn't happen, yeah. but I know that the guys that were involved in our program, no one that's, that's in ready um, uh, retaliated. Yeah, so it sounds like maybe uh, your reference group kind of directed you towards prison or helped you follow that path. Absolutely. So now in this case, you're actually creating a different reference group for people in the same path that you might have been on. Absolutely. Yep. That sounds pretty effective. Definitely. Definitely. How many people are in your program? So right now, across all three sites, um, there are 560 people, really? um, and there have been over a thousand um, individuals that have been randomized into Ready, uh, but actually like 560 show up, and this is across all three sites. Do you call it randomized, and what does that mean? So it's a randomized control study. So it's, oh, a, really? it's a study uh, okay. that the Chicago University uh, Crime Lab is doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you who funded all this. So. The majority of our fund, um, funding comes from like private funders, uh, philanthropists. Okay, sure. So, so a lot of our funding, but the goal is is for we want like public funding so that Ready Chicago can be in all of the neighborhoods throughout Chicago um, where they're they're having high rates of violence. So how do they randomize these control groups? Do they kind of just randomly pick you're in the group, you're not in the group, and so the. The Urban Lab has like an algorithm that they use. And so let's say, for instance, we submit 10 names. Five of those names will be selected and then five will go to like a control group. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah. And so there's there's no guarantee. So if I meet you in the streets and I give my spiel. Then you, get, you pick up the name. Yep, yep. I would also say, hey, it's no guarantee. But if your name is pulled, you would have a job tomorrow. Oh, interesting. Yep. Yeah, and then outreach actually once a person is randomized, then, out, then you have to go back and find them. Yep, yep. Outreach has up to a year to find the individual. So even if it takes me six months to find you, once I find you, your eighteen months starts from the day that you start the program. Okay. Yep. So like, let's say I'm just on the street selling drugs. You come up, you give me your spiel. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, I'll give it a shot, and I get the job. Mm -hmm. So what does my job look like, and how much do I get paid? So. I, what would happen if you agree, we would invite you out to a meet and greet, and the meet and greet is where you get to meet like folks from the outreach team, people from uh, the transition job provider, um, and then you would go through orientation. And then your first day of work, everybody starts off doing what we call community revitalization. And so that's simply you just going out and picking up trash uh, in different neighborhoods. And the goal of, of, which is stage one, is really around safety. So it's about us really 
like having the opportunity to build a relationship with you, giving you an opportunity to get to know us. And then also we look for little small things like can you follow directions? Can you work in a team? Um, Some of the soft skill stuff. Soft skills. Can you show up on time? And we help the individuals kind of like throughout that process. Yeah, what happens when they really struggle? Do you have a performance improvement plan? Yep. You give them give them a pip? Yep, yep. When they when if they're if they're struggling, so every Tuesday we have a case staffing meeting. And in this case staffing meeting, this is where both the outreach and trans transitional jobs provider, like each participant has a coach and an outreach worker that works with them specifically. And so they will create a plan based on your attendance. If it's if it's a it's if it's if you're having challenges getting to work, then we would talk about, do you need a bus car? Or how can we support you to help you make it here on time? Okay. Yeah. So it's very intense. Um, we don't miss anything. Like I said, it's four stages to the program. And one of the, the criteria is to move to stage two is attendance. Okay, tell me the rest of the stages. So stage two, we- This we, is a fascinating program. We framed it connection, which is once you have a certain amount of care of, CBT hours and your attendance and your work crew, like like every day when they go out to work, the, the crew chief who manages them when they're out on the work site gives them like a score that shows that they follow direction. So once you meet the three criteria to move to stage, uh, stage two, then your work assignment changes. So you may go um, to like urban growers where they actually go out and work like, like, like uh, building out like uh, farms, um, they do a lot of just like like outdoor work, but it's it's more like I'm trying to think of what's what's the word to kind of describe it. But you really like out just growing like vegetables and fruits and things like that. This um, kind of farming stuff. Yeah, urban farming. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what else is a stage two work assignment. Um, you may work in like a, a food, a shelter, or a pantry. Um, so so stage two comes with just different work assignments that so it increases responsibility. So when you go to stage two, your responsibility increases increases. Stage three Oh, does your paycheck increase too? Your your paycheck also increases. And what kind of pay rate are we talking? So everybody starts off at thirteen dollars an hour. Um, what's your minimum wage in Illinois or Chicago? You know what? I think they just moved it up to thirteen dollars an hour. Okay. So they everybody starts off at thirteen, and then they they the raise is a fifty fifty cent like like raise that's that's incremented into to what they get paid. Um, so then it's, in stage three, they actually work at like factories. Um, so we have like Modern Sprouts, which is a factory here in Chicago. Freeman Seating, which makes like the um, like the seats, the covers for like the seatings and trains and planes. Wait. Okay, so the stage three, they work on seats. Yeah, they they work on like like, like seats for. The coverings for like uh, like trains and buses, like the seating covers and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So they kind of they have a contract with the state to produce these. Yep. 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 So then, and then stage four is unsubsidized employment, which means they've identified like something that they want to do. They've been through some sort of like training program. Um, they've completed that training program, and now they're actually working. Um, it could be anything from as a, a truck driver, a machine operator. Whatever, whatever they decide, like career-wise, they want to do. So, so that would be stage four, which they would be working. Like I said, it's unsubsidized employment. So, like maybe looking at a year in context, uh, what does the funnel look like? How many people sign up for stage one, and then what's the attrition rate as they march through the steps? So, so it depends because each person is different. We have some folks who have been in the program for eighteen months and they're still in stage one, um, just because just attendance is is choppy. Um, they're just not really committed. 
I mean, it's just they just show up every once in a while. They, they just show up every once in a while, and that's one of the unique things too. So, so it's it's very rare for us to kick someone out the program. So you could have a fight, you could cuss somebody out, you could threaten somebody, and there's a way for you to come back into the program. Because these are the highest risk people that need probably the most help. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's really that's really what we look at. So we look at like the the individuals who are what we we would say the highest risk of the highest risk like we really try to like pay them more attention and offer like just more support to the ones that we know that are like just very active in the streets so right now how many people you have in phase one or step is it step one uh stage one stage one um i would say out of 77 folks right now that we have in inglewood I would say probably about maybe 35 of them are in stage one. Okay. Yeah. And stage two, what does that look like? Stage two, we probably have about maybe maybe 10 to 12, and okay. then maybe around the rest, well, maybe more than, more than that in stage two, and then it's only a few guys that's actually in stage three. Because okay. the program just started, too, in August of 2017. Oh, really? Okay. So we're actually just now starting to see, like, our first wave of people complete the program. And then how many people work with you? So I'm the, the community project manager, so I don't directly work with the participants. My job is to make sure that the systems and processes that are in place, that the staff are following those those processes and systems, and then really helping to build out like more effective like systems and processes. Because this is a new, this is a, a pilot program. It's never been done before. Okay. So my job is more like, I'm like a liaison for the partners in Heartland Alliance which is like the funder. Um, yeah, that's where I met Quentin. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm more in a, in a leadership role. Okay. Um, but I also work like with just the partners and supporting them in however I can. Yeah, so if it's not you actually interacting, how many people do you have interacting with these, the people, running, the people running through your program? So each participant has a coach and an outreach worker that they specifically like work with individually. But like on a daily basis, so let's say today is Monday. Each, like there are... I think five like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy groups. So each oh, one of did these, they come into Heartland for the group, or do you do the groups on site at Inglewood? And yeah, the, the groups happen in Inglewood, and then each there's a coach that has ten participants that are that are in their groups um, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So it's ten participants per coach, um, and there's like five groups, and then you also have outreach workers that are actually in the groups as well. So, so it's a pilot program, and how long are you gonna run it for? And then what are your out your outputs or your measures? So the goal, um, it was initially a three-year program. We're hoping to receive funding to extend that that, that three-year mark. Um, and then the outcomes, one of the outcomes is simply like, we, we just want to change the traje trajectory of a lot of these young men's life. And so an outcome could be, we just had a participant who graduated, who's now working on his own as a machine operator. So for us, that's, that's, that's a positive outcome. Um, one of the other outcomes is that we want to make sure in 18 months that these in, the, the individual participants, they don't end up in jail. Um, so that's the outcome. If they can do this 18-month program without going back to jail or somehow getting involved in the criminal justice system, we consider that a success. And then the last yeah. one is, is to reduce shootings. And so the goal is, is that we want to see a reduction in shootings happening in Inglewood, which, we, which we've seen somewhat. And so, like, you can kind of measure the outcomes there. And what is, from this group of people, out of 100 people, how many are going to end up in prison? How many are going to normally end up get shot without your intervention? If, if 
we didn't engage these individuals, there was a 90% chance that they would end up either a perpetrator or victim of gun violence. Wow. Yeah, just based on, so I can give you some uh, statistics that I just know offhand. Like, on average, each one of our participants has been arrested like 16 times. You're kidding me. Yeah. So that would, that would kind of explain the 90% chance that Absolutely. something bad's going to happen. Absolutely. These are super high risk. These are super high risk. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, like, and, and we don't know, like I said, because this is a pilot program, we're still waiting for a lot of the, the data to manifest. But basically what we've seen, and, and like we always say, we don't really know the impact because because the guys are in the program, we don't know. Like, what if the program didn't exist? Then we don't know, like, how many lives we've changed because yeah. these guys are with us versus them being out in the streets. And that's data that I feel like is not collected. And then, like, as far as a, a data metric, how do you quantify gun violence? Like, is there a cost to it that you calculate? Yes, I wish my wife was here because that's, like, she <laughs> knows this stuff off the top of top of her head. But, it, I mean, if you look at it, look at the hours that the police have to put in, doing investigations. If you look at just, like, all of the costs that are associated with, like, ambulance, the corners, just there's a list of things yeah. to where it costs the taxpayers money every time somebody is shot and killed. Yeah, I was leaving Hyde Park a couple of days ago, and I drove past, I couldn't tell if it was a school or an apartment building, but there was probably five fire trucks, six ambulances, and I swear probably 30 or 35 cop cars. I wow. mean, it's just an overwhelming, crushing force. So Absolutely. Um, I talked to, I think Alonzo said that that's how they do it. Like. They, they respond super, super heavy to let you know they're there. Absolutely. But, you know, that's that's not free. So no. if somebody's paying for all of those people to show up. Absolutely. Whether it's one shooting or Absolutely. whatever it is. I, I do know this, that there is a 9%, like, as far as, like, the um, like completion rates for the for, for CPD, Chicago Police Department. So they're only clearing, the clearance rate, they're only clearing 9% of the murders that happen here in Chicago, which is ridiculous. So it's almost like saying, like, you're giving people the green light to shoot people because the, 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 the police are not arresting any anyone from, from these shootings. They're not effective. Not effective at all. A 9% clearance rate. And there's a lot of police out there. And there are a lot of police out there. So what informs that? Is that there's just so much violence they can't do it? Or is corruption involved? Or what's going on in Chicago? So I would I would say that like if if we look at it look at like just investments right if i was to look at on my at look at my my return on investment i would just say it's not worth it because i do know we're spending billions of dollars on police officers who for whatever reason can't seem to solve any of these murders and so to me i would rather we invest that money in these communities and see what the return on investment would be because a lot of times when we have these violent weekends we hear like the local the mayors and the aldermans and the politicians talk about like hiring more police officers or putting more police officers on the street but if the the clearance rate is nine percent i just don't understand like the, the return on investment it doesn't just it doesn't add up to me yeah like even clearing murders that, that's a risk you know a reactive response absolutely you know, like after the murders already happened absolutely so unless there's you know lots of multiple shootings you know how, how do you get ahead of that so i think initiatives like ready chicago like the work that we do we're, we're on the front end of stuff before it happens because we're actually engaging these individuals they have a job they're doing cognitive behavioral therapy we're, we're engaging them after hours and so i think that's the proactive approach that that we should look at and invest in because it works. 
Not saying that we will be able to prevent and stop everything, but I think the return on investment is 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 worth us giving it a try versus just sending more police officers in the street. But you're out there in the mix making it happen. Absolutely. So it sounds like you do a lot of the administrative stuff, but it also sounds like you're actually on the streets at two in the morning. Yeah. So how do you kind of split your role? So initially when I first started, because I, I like to be hands-on, um, I was involved in like more of the like day-to-day uh, stuff that happens on the ground. But what I've learned, because I'm in school, and like I said, I have these li- a list of other things that I do, um, is that I've learned to balance while well, I'm learning to balance. And so there are days when I'm out and I'm out on the streets. And then there are days when I have to say like, okay, you know, today I'm going to work from home. or I'm going to go sit in a coffee shop uh, and just look at and work on a lot of administrative tasks. So I've, I'm learning to balance my, my schedule to where I'm not burning myself out. So where do you love it most? Where, where are you your happiest? Oh, advocacy work, policy okay. work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate this opportunity to do like more direct service work. Uh, and it just really made me appreciate the advocacy and policy work even more because I, I just, I like the systematic change and in, in the policy work because you can, you can pass a bill that could help thousands of people versus working with one individual at a yeah. time. And, and I mean, they're both needed. Uh, I just think that my, my heart and my passion is really with just the, the policy work. So speaking of working with one person, and everyone loves stories. Do you have a story where it got really dicey? You're out at two in the morning, helping someone, and uh, um, shit went sideways. Not not necessarily sideways, but I've had like I, I do have stories like even Antonio. Like this was somebody who I had invested a, a lot of time and energy into. Um, he was still a knucklehead. Um, was was really. Like, like really wanted to change his life. And, it, and I think to me, it just speaks volumes of like what that process is to transition from, from the streets to saying, I just want to be a, I want to become a productive citizen and not be involved in all of this mess. Um, and so there was a lot of times I can, I can remember one day I picked him up early in the morning. Um, it took him a long time to come out. Um, he came out and I was, and I kind of was like, Hey man, like, like, what took you so long? And he kind of looked at me, smelled like weed. It was like real loud. Um, and he just looked over and was like, I don't want to talk about it. So I, I turned my music up and was like, okay, I, I'll continue going to work. We don't have to talk. So then he turns my radio down. He starts going off about his girlfriend. And and then then when he finished, I said, I said, I, do, would you like for me to respond? Or he was like, no, I want to talk about it. So he turned my music back up. So, <laughs> so I said, okay. Then I went to McDonald's. He did it again. And then I cut the music off and was like, Hey man, listen, can we just talk about whatever it is you want to talk about? And he kind of just laughed and was like, no, I just need to get it off my chest. Um, and then he went to work and, and when he saw me later on, he, he just pulled me to the side and was like, Hey man, I appreciate you coming to pick me up and listening to me. Uh, I'm not used to that. I'm used to people telling me what I should do. And you just respected the fact that I didn't want to talk about it. Um, and, and he went to work. Very cool. Yeah. Then, of course, we lost him. So how do you, it sounds like you had this lovable knucklehead on your hands. Yeah. He's going down the right path and then you lose him. Yeah. So what does that feel like? That, it hurt it. It hurt Um even to this day, like that was that was one of the the, the moments when I kind of like told myself um, that I needed to pull back from really like building these relationships with participants because that is the 
the wrist. And and I've lost a lot of people since I've been home, family members while I was in prison. And, and I'm still struggling with like just my own, like how I grieve and the trauma that's associated with that. So yeah, does that make you fight harder or just want to say, you know, fuck it, I'm good? No, nah, so it, it made me want to fight harder um, and, and really push the partners more. So like like what I really learned from that process was that, that I need to be really invested in helping develop the partners to do the work versus investing in individual participants. And so that kind of changed my course of where I could say like my management style um, to where like I'm I'm really hard on partner staff now and I say hard meaning like that I realize that we need a lot of training to have because not everybody can can relate or wants to relate with a lot of this the, the population that we work with because it's a difficult like I don't want to I don't want to uh, under I wanna, uh, like just underestimate like just like the the work that goes into or downplay the work that goes into to working with these individuals because it's hard. Antonio was a tough story. Yeah. So you have a favorite story? So I have a lot, a lot of favorite stories. Just like last week, we had a, a site visit with one of the uh, analysts from Channel Seven, and so um, we had five participants who were part of uh, of the site visit, and and just listening to them, and I mean, it was a real conversation. Like we had. We had went through like all of this hard work of creating an agenda, and we we need this person to say this and this person to say this. And when we actually got in the meeting, none of that stuff happened. It was just a very organic conversation oh, nice. where the participants were able to be real and just talk about how the the initiative had really helped them out. And and these were these were participants who some of them had a couple of them had been terminated a couple of times and worked their way worked their way back into the program but just listening to them be themselves but also talk about how they were they were using like CBT when they went home and in the streets like like that for me was a real like just like joyful moment because it was real like one guy said that he was in a situation where his life was threatened and he used CBT and he said what he did was normally he would have responded like, you know, like somebody's trying to kill me. He would have responded in a certain type of way that probably would have gotten him killed. But he said he he kind of thought about it and processed the situation and was just calm. And he was able to walk away from a situation where, like, he, he didn't get killed. Fascinating. Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. So you just, just listening to them talk about just like the challenges that they that they've had and how they're using what they've learned and just talking about how staff is really invested in cares like that was a very like joyful moment so if you had a magic wand and you could just solve all of south side chicago's problems oh. <laughs> where would you start sounds like you're kind of at the heart of the matter now where would i start um if I, like, had... I guess you're already starting but like what would it look like so if i had a magic wand um i would have an unlimited uh, like access to, to money and I would start off with housing and so I would I would and I hate to use the word gentrify because I don't mean like that like what that actually means but I would I would invest in these communities and and just build new houses and grocery stores um, mental health clinics things that the neighborhood needs but I wouldn't raise like the the um, I wouldn't raise the amount or like just like what the 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 living expenses would be for them to live in that community. So I would change everything in the community, 
but but make it to where it's affordable so that the people who live there can live in their neighborhood, but it would be a better looking neighborhood. Gotcha. That's the investment you're talking about. That's the investment. Gentrification without moving people away. Yeah. Fixing a neighborhood up, but allowing the people who live there to stay there and also have a say in what that neighborhood looks like. Sounds like your next project. I hope so. Start one block at a time. One block at a time, absolutely. Cool. So I guess we met at the, uh, the Just Leadership USA thing. Yep. What did you take from that program? And what uh, was your favorite part about that? My favorite part? Or I guess, how did they get you? Um, I think the best thing that, that, that I learned in JUSA is, is the connections that I made with other participants that, that were also involved in that program. So me meeting you and doing this podcast, um, I talked to John yesterday who's in Las Vegas and we're trying to work on some stuff. I talked to Anthony who's in Mississippi and he's setting up a conference call for us to look at like partnering on some stuff. So just the relationships that I've built um, from this year long fellowship, like to me, that was the most valuable thing that I walked away with. Yeah. They do a great job curating just amazing people from all over the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the relationships that I've built and I mean, along the way I've learned a lot as far as um, just like the like leadership and, and my capabilities as a leader. On the executive coaching we're getting. Executive coaching. And so I do apply like the taking responsibility, self-reflection, and collective leadership. So those are things that like I, I truly value and believe in and have put into practice since I've been home. But like I said, I, I, I learned a lot from that program. And I think, and, and a lot of the trainers that I've been in, like been involved in, to me, this was the best training that I've been in that's, that's specifically for people with records. Well, very cool. Anything else you want to toss in the mix? Um, not that I can think of. I'm married with five kids. I have a total of eight kids. So, so we're really lucky to get your house quiet today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The little monsters. Yep, the little monsters. <laughs> yep. All right, Marlon Chamberlain. Yep. Thanks, Mar for, thanks for your time, buddy. Absolutely. Appreciate it.